0: Welcome to Wealthy Behavior, talking money and wealth with Heritage Financial, the podcast that digs into the topics, strategies, and behaviors that help busy and successful people build and protect their personal wealth. I'm your host, Sammy Azuz, the president and CEO of Heritage Financial, a Boston-based wealth management firm working with high net worth families across the country for longer than 25 years. Now let's talk about the wealthy behaviors that are key to a rich life. Welcome to the August Investment Edition of the Wealthy Behavior Podcast, where I talk to Heritage Financial's Chief Investment Officer, Bob Weiss, about what's going on in the markets and what he thinks you need to know about investing right now. Bob, how are the dog days of summer treating investors?
1: Uh, Summer's going great for investors. Uh, Markets have have had a a, a very strong year and uh, they got bumpy back in March uh, with the, the, the bank failures, namely Silicon Valley Bank. But um, as we made our way through that, the last few months have been excellent. Anything in particular jump out at you? I'll, I'll just run through the numbers on that note. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll read off two numbers year to date, and we're recording on August 2nd and then just trailing one month to um, basically capture um, July last month and since we last recorded. So uh, MSCI USA, so um, the, like US stock total market, um, up about 20% year to date. 3% over the last month. MSCI World XUS, us so this is um, foreign developed countries, 13.7 year-to-date, 2% over the last month. And then MSCI Emerging Markets, 11% year-to-date and 5.85% over the last month. So um, all strong double-digit returns in equities. Um, emerging markets showing some sign of life over the last month, catching up a little bit, um, but they have been lagging the U.S. and to break down the U.S. a little bit more, um, MSCI USA growth year-to-date thirty-seven point five percent, and MSCI USA value five percent. So huge spread in um, growth versus value in the U.S. thirty-seven to five, and then. We can't forget about bonds because bonds are more interesting these days. Um, Just looking at the Bloomberg U.S. aggregate year to date, about one and a half percent. So, well, decent return, um, but um, over the last month, negative 63 basis points. Um, So bonds have given back a little bit with a slight uptick in rates.
0: So why is that, Bob? Just the uptick in rates?
1: Yeah, the uh, yield up, price down. So. Fed has been raising rates last week. Um, the Fed raised rates to a a five and a quarter to five and a half range. And um yields have gone up a little bit over the course of the year.
0: So we can't really comment on why a market is doing what it's doing or why the last month you know happened to be what the last month was, but there is maybe a lesson for investors about this year in the markets, in particular. A lot of bad stuff out there, a lot of bad potentialities, inflation, rate hikes, maybe a debt uh, ceiling debacle, uh, recession around the corner, uh, and markets are having a very strong year. I think one of the strongest years uh, in recent memory. So how do you process that as a, as a chief investment officer and how do you counsel clients and individual investors to, to think about a year like this? What lesson should they take away from it so far? I, I know it's not, we're not done the calendar year yet. Yeah. It's a, it's a great point. Um,
1: and add bank failures to that list too. As oh we yeah. Mentioned yep. earlier. So, um, there's been a lot to worry about, you know, on recession watch and inflation, the highest we've seen in decades and, um, I think a good takeaway for investors, something to to keep in mind is it's not good or bad, it's better or worse. And when you have bad, but bad gets less bad, i.e. better, uh, which is the story of of 2023, that typically means rising stock prices. So when you have a lot to worry about, there's a lot of room for things to get better. Um, Really, one of the times when you should be the most concerned is when you have nothing to worry about because then it can really only get worse if everything's perfect. So there were a lot of concerns in markets, like inflation was high, but that's come down. It's still above the Fed's target, but it's gotten better. Uh, Recession risks were elevated. Um, They're still out there, but they're not as high as they were before. So um, you know, bank failures were happening and there was a fear that they'd spread um, and have a greater impact on the financial system that didn't pan out. So we've had these risks, and, uh, oh, and and the, the debt ceiling, you know, those things come and go so quickly that you know as we're going up into it, we're getting filled in a lot of client questions. Everyone was so worried about it, and then it passes, and you know that's behind us uh, for now. So um, I think just a, a takeaway um, for our listeners is when you're worried about markets, you know, your human instinct is to act, and oh no, like get out of markets, but. Um, you know, that means there's a lot of room for improvement when there's things to be worried about and markets go up as conditions improve. And that's what we've seen this year.
0: So is this a case of there was a lot to worry about and it just didn't materialize as badly as maybe market participants were thinking or that if you're expecting the worst and it comes in a little bit better, you know, that's a great rally point for markets. Are those both the same thing?
1: yeah i think same thing maybe a little of each and there's a lot of topics there like on, on the banking failures i'd say that that kind of didn't pan out to be a main event um things like recession you know still could come in 2024 um thinking the odds are close to 50 50 on that you know soft landing versus probably more mild recession um in inflation is still a little elevated, um, has been coming down. We're starting to see some concerning data that you know it, it might be hard for the Fed to hit 2.0%. Um, they've got it down to three, but that, that last um, step may be difficult. So um, higher rates for longer is definitely in the cards. So risks remain. Risks remain. Um, what do you think the Fed is going to do from here? Yeah, it's a tough one. Um, but at the next meeting in September, it it's, I think, most likely a, a, a pause, a hold, uh, whatever the terminology is, just leave rates um, as is. And then in the meeting after that, the November meeting, um, I think it's looking like a, a 50-50 chance of a rate increase. And you know, the Fed would say data dependent. It um, depends a lot on what data comes out between now and then. Um, Two things that caught my attention um, are oil prices. So oil was um, it, it, in the 70s, and then it, it spiked up to the 100 level um, in 2022 when Russia invaded Ukraine. And then it, it dropped back down to the 70s. So you had a big year-over-year year, um, decline in the price of energy when you're doing 70 divided by, say, 110 um, but in the month of July, oil went up about fifteen percent. So um, back um, up into the, the low eighties. So just when you see you know fifteen percent move in oil to the upside, that just flows through to so many parts of the economy. When you're looking at inflation, like think of transportation costs, whether you're buying a plane ticket to go on vacation or, or getting food imported from you know South America, um, you know just goods um, being um, Transported across the world. So um, and then oil's in a lot of products too. And part of that, what um uh, co- caused the, the the increase in oil, um uh, kind of slightly depressing headline for um you know, especially the climate. Um we set a new record for global oil consumption um, at over 110 million barrels a day um last month. So um you know, there's long-term chart of population growth and um, have been consuming more oil. But then when COVID hit, things slowed down and um, oil consumption declined and there's been a trend towards alternative energy. Um, But, you know, people are traveling again and summer's been active and um, we're using a lot of oil. So um, that's led to an increase in oil prices. So anyways, long-winded way of saying that's something to keep an eye on. And hopefully we see that stabilize and even decline um, because that's an inflationary risk. And the second, inflationary risk is housing. Mm -hmm. We saw a stretch of, depending on how you measure it, about seven to eight months of declines in housing prices. And you don't want declines in housing prices, but more stability. And then the last few months have been accelerating. And um, we recently received the May housing report. And in the month of May, housing was up 1%. And when you're trying to target like a 2 2.5% two annual pace of inflation, you, you shouldn't be seeing 1% jumps in a month. Uh, so you know, a little more anecdotal, just, you know, seeing transactions in, in my town, you know, you're seeing the bidding wars are are back, eye-popping valuations. Um, so th- there might be more to come there. So, um, you know, the, the Fed um, definitely doesn't want... Um, housing inflation like we saw a couple of years ago. So that's something to keep an eye on.
0: So it sounds like you're a little bit more concerned about the inflation flight fight since maybe the last time we recorded. It is. Yeah, uh, I
1: am. Um, and it, it does kind of play into what the Fed's been saying. When you look through history, like in the 70s and 80s, inflation came, they fought it and you know they, they started to take it easy and it came back. Uh, you know, the, the, the saying is inflation sticky and persistent. So um, they, they, they got inflation from nine down to three and the targets two. So it's like, we're, we're at the goal line. Um, but as we're at the goal line and about to get to two, you're seeing housing go up 1% a month. You're seeing oil go up 15% a month and you you can kind of cheat with the, um, CPI, um, math when you do the, um, 12 month numbers. So, um, July of 2022, the CPI reading was 0.0%. So when the the next CPI report comes off, a zero falls out of the math and whatever July comes in. And knowing that oil was up about 15% in July and you have a zero falling off, there's a pretty good chance that CPI is going to go up. After all these months of going from nine down to three, I think we're going to see a, a little increase. Um, so it's just something to keep an eye on. And and the, the Fed um, may not be done, may need to keep rates at these levels or go a little higher.
0: And what is the market saying about where Fed rate expectations are going to be?
1: Yeah, it's a, a, a low probability, but um, leaning towards a, an increase, like an increase is more likely than a cut in September, but the most likely um, market implied outcome is nothing in September. Okay. And then the most likely outcome, it's like a 50-50 chance of a 25% increase, 25 basis point increase in November. And then the market gets to pricing in cuts in 2024. And as you go further out, um, like to the end of 24, pricing in several rate cuts.
0: With energy prices being so volatile historically and housing being in a little bit of this weird environment where rates are higher, housing affordability is down, but inventory is so low, so prices look strong. It, has the Fed talked at all about either of those dynamics and maybe looking through them uh, as they worry about inflation?
1: It, it, I know they do tend to um, model around energy, like look at core inflation and, and that drives people bonkers like core, which is X food and energy. And they do it because food and energy are very volatile. And you have the rebuttal of, but I mean, I can't live without food and energy. Uh, but they they're definitely aware of that. And you know, a one move, one one month move in energy prices is something to keep an eye on, but not act on. Um, housing, it, it is tricky. I, I, mean, I have a chart up to put some numbers on that. Um, active home listings is about seventeen percent below where we were a year ago. Hmm. um, 770,000 in the month of July. Um, uh, and you know, over the last you know, three years, the average amount of homes on the market in July has been around 900,000 or so. So you, you definitely have, um, low inventory because people have, you know, their, their two or 3% mortgage and, um, it makes a big hurdle. I was talking to a friend the other day and he said, I'd move if I didn't have a 2% mortgage right. um, to sell a house with a two to buy a house with a 7% mortgage that's costly um so yeah you you have tricky dynamics there um what what's interesting and um i wonder what would happen if rates declined to the housing market you'd see those people who are holding on to their mortgage they'd move so inventory would um loosen up um but I, i have
0: seen one commentator talk about that that the best thing the fed could do to help inflation is to cut rates to get more homes listed to make pricing more equilibrium between buyers and sellers.
1: Yeah, that it's definitely a, a challenge in the housing market and the, the lack of supply is causing a problem.
0: Yeah. Um, Staying though with inflation in central banks, the U.S. is doing things a little bit differently than the rest of the world, right? Or at least parts of, of the world?
1: Yeah, I think in general, um, the, the world is battling inflation, and the US central bank, the Federal Reserve, was quicker to act, more aggressive to act, so raised rates higher and sooner. And um, the, the US is benefiting from that by seeing lower inflation compared to other parts of the world. And other parts of the world now, the central banks are, are kind of playing catch up to the US and almost maybe watching what, what happened and saying, oh, that, that is working there. So uh, you know, almost following the U.S. with a, with a bit of a lag. So, um, relative to um, it's tough to sp- kind of just speak in total aggregate, but um, the, the U.S. Uh, I think central bank has done a pretty good job compared to other banks, uh, central banks um, in combating inflation.
0: You touched on something in the open about the difference in performance between value and growth stocks, which was pretty dramatic. But I know in talking to you you've recently seen some data that would just put that into perspective a little bit in terms of what the future opportunity is how expensive those segments of the market are we are value investors or at least we focus on valuation so you know this type of environment is important for us to to kind of analyze and understand a little bit more so so talk to me a little bit more about what you're seeing in value versus growth and Maybe again, a quick reminder for our listeners: the 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 classic definition of a growth stock versus a value stock.
1: Yeah, sure. So a value stock is a company that trades at a a kind of an attractive price, a good value. So um, you can look at it price to earnings, price to book, um, but relative to fundamentals, the the price is low um, for what you get. Whereas growth, the price is high relative to fundamentals. And why would you pay a high price? Because you think it's gonna grow. So you pay a premium for growth stocks because you think you're gonna see higher growth and you get value stocks at a discount because you're not as optimistic about the growth there. So uh, the data you're you're referencing, um, JP Morgan chart, looking at the average price to earnings ratio of value stocks over the last 25 years, and it's about 14. And the current um, forward price earnings ratio of value stocks, and it's fourteen. So value stocks are are average. They're they've been at fourteen over the last twenty five years on average, and they're at fourteen right now. Growth stocks over the last twenty five years, the average is about twenty times earnings. So growth, as by definition, is more expensive than value, as it should be. So growth, the average is twenty. Right now, it's twenty seven times earnings. Mm-hmm. So um, and I mentioned growth is up over 30% year to date, um, well, that, that's basically how you get from a, a 20 PE to 27 PE. Um, so growth is expensive, um, of course, to value as it should be, but it's also expensive to just kind of growth on average over time. So when you look at the markets, um, that pocket, that segment of growth, especially large cap growth, um, where you've got you know, some of the big tech names that have done very well this year, um, they do stand out as outliers compared to history. So an
0: area to just be a, a, a little cautious in,
1: um, uh, I'd advise.
0: And it wasn't supposed to be the, that way this year, right? We were hearing the last couple of years about some, I would consider, new concept that growth stocks are long duration stocks, or is it value, st- value stocks are? What, what, what was this nonsense and why didn't it pan out?
1: Yeah, so um, I first started hearing this argument a a few years ago. And what you're getting at is if you have two companies and one is highly profitable today, call it company A, a lot of cash flow coming in today to investors and another company isn't profitable today, but they're going to be profitable in five years, in 10 years. Like down the road, they're going to be making a lot of money for you. They're just not there yet. As an analyst, when you're valuing those companies, the common way to value a company is like a, what's called a dividend discount model where you're discounting future cash flows to a present value. So you're taking the cash today that I'm going to get, the cash next year, the cash in year three, year four, year five, et cetera, the cash in year 10. And you use a discount rate to say, what's that cash flow worth today? And if you use a, a low discount rate, I Maybe mean, even say if you use a zero percent discount rate, then if it's going to have a billion dollars in profits in ten years, then that's worth a billion dollars today. If you use a zero percent discount rate, if you use a ten percent discount rate, uh, I'm not going to discount ten percent over ten years on the on the fly in a podcast. But a billion dollars is worth a lot less today um, because you're discounted by ten percent every year for ten years. So what some people have argued is that when you have a higher discount rate, growth stocks are less attractive. Value stocks, meanwhile, they're cash flowing today, so there's not much time to discount the cash flows. And that is the case that some people made for uh, supporting the performance of growth stocks in the like 2018 period, 2018, 2019, 2020, when growth did really well because we had low interest rates. Yep. So as rates are low, so uh, you know the, the discount mechanism that, that people use to value growth stocks makes them attractive. And um, you know I'll, I'll give a plug to DFA. I shared that research with them and said, "What do you guys think about this?" And they they politely said, "It's hogwash. That's just um, you know something people say today, but if you test it, it doesn't pan out." And you know I said, "Well, show me the research." And they pointed to the '90s and and said, "If you look in '98 and '99," we had higher interest rates, around 5%, and growth stocks did great. So it it doesn't pass the test. And um, here we are in 2023 with higher interest rates and growth stocks are winning. So that kind of logic of growth does well with low rates, but not high rates um, isn't playing out. So not to say it's like myth debunked and there's nothing to it because there is some logic behind it, but uh, markets are more complicated than just simply low rates are you know good for one segment of stocks and not the other
0: and i think as a an individual investor and in your example you know the value stock was company a and the growth stock was was company b but I think as an individual investor the lesson is when you start to hear new stuff new buzzwords new things on cnBC new managers talking in certain ways whether it's a earnings recession or high duration stocks versus low... Dur- and it's just stuff you haven't heard before used to justify a viewpoint. Take a pause, take a step back because it's likely not going to stand the test of time, I think. And this high duration, low duration nonsense, I'm you're nicer about it than I am, uh, I, I think just didn't make sense and, and, and didn't really pan out. So as i was preparing for this podcast this morning i saw that fitch downgraded the us from aaa to aa plus i don't know if i'm even you know saying that correctly and we last saw this in 2011 i believe when the SM, when s&p did the same thing just looking at it those can be two potential areas of concern coming out of that uh, of a downgrade like that one is you know will it rattle markets because 2011 was a very tough year for markets particularly around that S&P debt downgrade and then the other thing is whether investors will have to sell treasuries if you know the that AAA rating is not there any thoughts on that i mean i i have a couple i feel like the market has processed this before 12 years ago so this time around, it it's not new. And while the market is selling off today, I would consider it a, a modest sell-off. So I guess I don't expect as much volatility around this downgrade than we had 12 years ago. And two, you know, I saw a note or people are referencing a note that's floating around from Goldman Sachs saying that uh, investors are likely not going to be forced to sell treasuries because the written mandate of owning treasuries doesn't refer to AAA securities in general, but specifically to U.S. treasuries, since it's that important of an asset class. So I think maybe in the camp of, yeah, it could generate some short-term volatility, but it's not a real game changer, and it should likely be better than what we faced in 2011.
1: Yeah. So what we're seeing in the market is um, a sell-off on the long end of the yield curve. So 10-year treasury, 20, 30-year treasury yields are, are ticking up on the shorter end. Not much movement from this. But I think the reason for that of the way investors think is if you go from AAA to AA, it doesn't mean you're going to default tomorrow or in a year. But 30 years, that carrying that risk over 30 years, it, it's um, you know, has has a little more of an impact. U.S. debt is, is, is tricky, um, especially to have a view and act on it from an investment standpoint, because it's so long term um, with how these things can play out. I think I have shared a concern on this, on this podcast before about uh, U.S. debt to GDP being around 100%. And when you have low interest rates, zero, one, two percent, um, the cost to, to finance that debt isn't that high. But as interest rates rise, and you're financing $30 trillion of debt at 4%, at 5%, it, it starts to get expensive. And um, interest costs are, are now projected to be about a trillion dollars a year. And that is becoming a, a very major budget line item. Um, put in perspective, just a couple of years ago, it was in the, the low hundreds of like 200, 300 billion. So you go from 200, 300 billion to a trillion, that's a big move. And it's just projected to increase. So the, the U.S does need to get a better handle on that. Um, you know, what's interesting when you reflect on the last few years when COVID hit, there was government stimulus. So um, it's textbook. The economy is at a standstill, so what do you do? The Fed cuts rates um, to stimulate the economy, and Congress has all kinds of stimulus, you know, mailing checks, cutting taxes, PPP programs, just, just kind of sending money out there and then things get hot and you have a a ripping economy. What does the Fed do? They do what they should. They increase the Fed funds rates. What does Congress do? Textbook, if they're rational, they should raise taxes. And that's when you balance the budget. That's when you start to pay down the debt, when times are good and things are hot.
0: But they didn't do that. So they're not acting. Raise taxes or cut spending, right? I mean, just pull right. money out of the system to balance this conversation. Yes, right. Yeah,
1: raise either way. Yeah, right. And trust me, I don't want to pay any more taxes. But um, it, it's it's like they're you know willing to spend to stimulate, but they're not willing to be the bad guys because they want to get elected again um, to help slow things down. And that's just not good fiscal discipline. You, you can't have it one way where you stimulate. Overspend at times, but you're never willing to, you know, kind of recoup that in hot markets, hot economies. Um, so there's some concern there, but I don't think you can act on that as an investor.
0: No. And I think Fitch references a lot of what you're saying. I read their comments, and it is more of the longer term debt picture, the lack of great governance in the US right now these, you know, ongoing debt ceiling debates. Uh it's almost like it's their way of lecturing the US a little bit to, you know, course correct uh on on some of these things. So uh it is interesting, came out today. I, I think investors would have wanted to know about it. So I'm glad that we had an opportunity to touch on it before uh we finished recording. I wanted to ask you a question. Last episode of the podcast I had on Michael Santoli, the senior markets commentator at CNBC. Uh, I know somebody you really like watching and you gave me a couple of questions to ask him. One question you didn't give me, which I am going to ask you though, is I asked him if he could have access to any investor, uh, to, to basically ongoing persistent access to any investor to pick their brain whenever he wanted, who would it be? And he said somebody like David Tepper or David Tepper, the, I believe, Appaloosa head fund manager who now owns the Carolina Panthers of of all things, who would yours be? That's
1: a tricky question um, because with that, like David Tepper, he's a a macro hedge fund guy for our listeners and um, looking at the world and having views across all asset classes. That's a, a narrow segment of the market. Most professional money managers have a a specialty kind of an asset class they focus on like stocks or bonds or real mm-hmm. estate. And uh, no matter how brilliant they may be, what I've found is they tend to have a bias towards talking their book. They're conflicted. Um, so if you you know listen to a bond manager, there's a good chance that his or her advice may end up um, leading you to increase your bond allocation. So there's a lot of conflicts out there. Um, I've, found to to answer your question. I I do like Lizanne Saunders. Hmm. um, She's very balanced um, and and maybe leans bullish as one should. So she's typically pretty optimistic, but not always. And that's what I mean by balanced. Um, She has a process. um, So she's consistently talking about the same data points rather than something new every time. So um, she's consistent on that front. And by that, I mean. She regularly looks at valuations, which I believe are important, but also um, I think more so than most looks at um, sentiment and like behavioral um, measures of markets, and uh, that gets a little more artsy. Like it's it's kind of hard to, you know, maybe measure or, or think about like surveys like of the crowd, um, but. I think that stuff is not important when you're looking at markets over shorter periods of time because valuations can um, take years and years and years to play out. There's studies that show the um, there's basically zero meaning in a PE measure over the next one year. If you look at a market, whether it's cheap or expensive, it means nothing in, over the next 12 months. Over the next 10 years, it's meaningful, but one year, it's meaningless um, because markets can be irrational for a long period of time. So that's where balancing that with sentiment comes in. And you know, is is the crowd very optimistic, and that's how bull markets run with momentum, or are they very pessimistic? And so I think she pairs those nicely. And she's not um, conflicted because she doesn't manage money. When you think mm-hmm. about what her incentives are, she represents Charles Schwab, and I think she genuinely wants and is incentivized for Charles Schwab investors to have a good investment experience. And to me, that's, Someone who is should be giving you pretty good advice.
0: Wow! All right, I like it. And the good news for you is her content is fairly regular and accessible, so uh, you don't even have to use your magic wish of getting constant access to her because she's her views are out there, which is great, and people right. can access them. So, uh, Bob, thank you for this. I really enjoyed the dialogue. I think uh, listeners will have learned a lot about what's going on in the markets and and the investment world right now, which is. What we're trying to bring to them on a monthly basis through these conversations. So enjoy the rest of your summer and we will chat after Labor Day. Sounds good. Thanks, Sammy. How to build your next million Heritage Financial's ebook teaches investors about the tools and strategies that can help them save, keep, grow, and protect their assets. This free ebook can be accessed in this episode's show notes and on our website at heritagefinancial.net. Thank you for listening to Wealthy Behavior. If you found the conversation useful, please leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share this episode so those around you can live a rich life too. We appreciate your feedback and questions. Please email us at heritagefinancial.net. For more insights, subscribe to our weekly blog at heritagefinancial.net and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Check out my personal finance blog at thebostonadvisor.com. Wealthy Behavior is produced by Kristen Kastner and Michelle Kakamis. This educational podcast is brought to you by Heritage Financial Services LLC, located in the greater Boston area. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are that of the speaker, are subject to change, and do not constitute investment advice or a recommendation regarding any specific product or security. There is no guarantee that any investment or strategy discussed will be successful or will achieve any particular level of results. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of principal.